Hey everyone, and welcome to the South Carolina Grower Exchange Podcast. Every week, agents, specialists, and growers from around the state chat about what's happening in the field and discuss the latest crop weather, insect, disease, and weed issues, as well as timely reminders and information related to fruit and vegetable production in South Carolina. Remember, you can read weekly field updates and register for upcoming events by visiting the SC Grower blog at scgrower.com. All right, good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the South Carolina Grower Exchange. We appreciate you tuning in. Um, we have got, um, we do have a, a crop report for you guys this morning. Make sure to check out the blog so you can see all the updates from around the state. Um, this morning, it's just it's just me and Rob as far as agent reports go, but uh, we'll, we'll try to make it interesting for you. I know from my area around the Aiken, Edgefield County area, um, peaches are moving along. Um, of course, we did have a lot of damage from those um, freeze events earlier on, so our May crop is short, um, but we do still have a few early season peaches. Um, that are going to be available. So they're looking good. They're sizing. Uh, we are seeing though a lot of like button peaches, um, just fruit that isn't developing like it should, and a lot of fruit that is um, almost like stuck in the shuck. And those fruit loops will probably just drop off and uh, not develop in the full size fruit. So again, we knew that we had a loss in some of those May and even early June varieties, but um, it now that you know, we're getting some big size on the fruit. It's becoming a little more apparent um, the extent of the damage. So mid and late season varieties are still looking good. Like we're gonna have a good promising crop, but again, those early varieties not looking that great, um, but just still um, applying our fungicide sprays and putting out fertilizer. Um, a lot of growers are putting out their fertilizers right now. And another reminder, even though you've got a orchard that might not have a full crop of peaches, um, you still don't wanna skimp on those fertilizer applications because you still wanna set the tree up to be strong and healthy. So hopefully it can produce a good crop last year, especially on trees that produced a heavy crop last year. Um, they really need that extra fertilizer this year to kind of give them that boost. So don't skimp, um, make sure that you're still keeping up with your um, spray programs so you can keep those trees healthy. And hopefully we don't have a crazy freeze again um, next year and we won't have to worry about these early season varieties. Um, strawberries, still looking good. We're kind of recovering from a bunch of rain. We are seeing some botrytis show up in the field. Um, I know I talked last week in the field report about some leather rot something that I haven't seen a ton in plasticulture, but I did have several samples that I collected um, that just everything besides it wasn't super common on plastic um, was just kind of pointing towards leather rot. So I did send those to the lab and got confirmation of that. So as long as you're spraying and staying on top of a good spray schedule and rotation of fungicides for um, a gray mold program, you should be good with um, that leather rock control as well. So we're, we're drying out, we're heating up. It's been windy, so again, definitely drying out. We don't have a ton of rain forecasted 
um, in the next 10 days. So, you know, field conditions are improving and hopefully we can get out and continue to put in those summer crops. So that's kind of what is going on in my area. And Rob, I'll, I'll get a little update from you on what's happening in your area as well. Sure, good morning, Sarah. I echo what you said with peaches. Our early crops down here got really badly hammered by the freeze. Later crops look to, certainly look to be putting on better volumes. Uh, strawberries, we're finding a lot of botrytis and anthracnose. Um, again, as Sarah mentioned, keep up with the fungicides, keep up with sanitation. That's going to be really crucial to help to manage that disease. And obviously, remember to rotate the modes of action of fungicides. We are aware of several materials with resistance, particularly within botrytis, grey mold. Uh, so that rotation is really, really important to maintain effective disease control and protect the chemistry that we have for as long as we possibly can. Blueberries are coming into market in the area with good volumes. Again, they seem to have um, survived quite nicely from the frost. And in a lot of cases in this area, we were looking at having an overcropped blueberry crop. So what the, the frost actually helped to thin some of those fruitlets out, allowing us to get that better sized fruit that looks more attractive in, in containers. Cucurbits are busily going in the ground. We've got watermelons, got a transplant stage running right the way through to early vining. So we are seeing cucumber beetles present and active in a large number of fields. So I'm recommending that we are putting uh, some insecticides out. Generally, the neonicotinoids are performing very well when applied through the drip. Uh, that's going to help to give you a longer term protection. We're also looking at things like dimethyphuran, uh, venom, scorpion type products, again, through the drip or foliar, depending on label restrictions as well. Um, if your watermelons are beginning to look towards vining, now's the time to begin disease management programs. Particularly if you're looking at bacterial fruit blotch, um, that would be a copper application applied at vining. Please remember, don't ever mix clothalanil with copper. You will see phytotoxicity and scorch. The best bet for that one is actually a mancozeb or manzate and copper mixture, and then follow that in rotation with some clothalanil for subsequent applications. Um, cucumbers are in the ground and emerging and looking good. Um, and again, as Sarah mentioned, we've received some rainfall over the week over the last week, which has certainly helped crops go on. I think that covers pretty much everything I wanted to say. Yeah, great, thank you, Rob. Um, and I think that we talked about this last time, but again, just another reminder um, for the, uh, our strawberry growers out there, if you're seeing botrytis pop up in your fields and um, you're kind of wanting to get some information about your fungicide rotation, we do offer um, through the, um, Plant Services Lab, um, the D Disease and Diagnostic Clinic offers uh, fungicide resistance testing now. Um, they run two separate panels, so you can um, kind of choose what you get tested based on the chemical um, program that you use. But um, if you are seeing that pop through botrytis or you feel like you're having just a little bit more um, of that disease breakthrough than you should, I would recommend doing that just to see um, maybe you need to change up your rotation some. 
but there's more information about that on the SC Grower blog, or you can contact your local extension agent so they can help you get those samples sent in. All right, and this morning, um, Dr. Matt Cattuli is with us. He is um, going to talk a little bit about some spring weed control for us. Um, I know we were saying earlier, I was asking, do you call it spring weed still, or are we kind of getting into summer? But um, he was mentioning that we have a lot of our early, early season weeds still out there, but then we have a lot of new emerging weeds as well. So it's a weedy time for us. Um, what are what are we seeing and, and what's some advice you can give to growers on getting a head start on their weed management? Yeah, uh, certainly. So when I think of, uh, you know, we're approaching May and to me, May is when you have the crossover of uh, germination of early summer annuals such as crabgrass. Crabgrass uh, in the low country starts um, germinating yeah, maybe mid-February. I remember, I remember that because Valentine's Day, I'm over at my uh, fiance's house putting out the crabgrass pre-emergent herbicides in the lawn. So How yeah. romantic. <laughs> so that, that's Valentine's. That is, for whatever, as a weed scientist, I think of Valentine's Day as crabgrass emerging and put out your crabgrass pre-herbicide. But um, you know, they're going to, crabgrass and some of the other early summer annuals are going to continue germinating through, through May, you know, to, to early May. And We've already started to see. Um, I think I, I've seen some uh, some goosegrass emerging. You know, it's usually like early May when you see goosegrass, barnyard grass, um, and you know, in terms of grasses, it's you're doing a tough flood, a ton of right now. Um, I've also started to see. I saw I saw a nuts edge germinating more than a month ago. That was in plasticulture systems. So the plasticulture, you know, not only you know it keeps the warm. The, sorry, keeps the ground warm, uh, which is going to encourage early germination of certain weeds. And nutsedge is one of the only weeds that can actually puncture through the black plastics. So I've seen nutsedge and plastic culture systems uh, germinating, or the tubers, sorry, the tubers uh, growing since, uh, you know, certainly more than a month ago. And now, uh, you know, it's, it's warmed up a lot. We're seeing a lot of uh, nutsedge germinating in bare ground scenarios as well. Um, I, to me, like the the driver weeds, at least in conventional production or vegetable production are nutsedge, purple and yellow. We're starting to see a little more purple uh, nutsedge, at least in the low country, and I think the Midlands as well, South Carolina. Purple nutsedge is actually rated the worst weed in the world um, as, as noted by the International Weed Science Society. It is a, um, a little more robust than yellow nutsedge in terms of its uh, ability to puncture through plastic. Although I would say that Yellow nutsedge that I've seen in South Carolina is really aggressive as well with its growth. Purple nutsedge is going to uh, perform a little bit, you know, it, uh, the hotter it gets, the more prolific uh, purple nutsedge growth is. So we've seen a kind of, in my six years in South Carolina, I've seen a little bit of an increase in purple nutsedge. Um, I'll go into some control measures later, but there seems to be some, some, some promising options and management strategies that we can use to, to control uh, um, purple and then yellow nutsedge as well. But an individual nutsedge tuber can produce more than uh, 2,000 new plants. Um, so it's very uh, most of the uh, most of the regeneration is through uh, vegetative production, tubers, and new plants, as opposed to seed, which is somewhat minimal. Uh, the other driver weed that we're starting to see is uh, Palmer amaranth or Amaranthus palmaris. It's a scientific name. 
Uh, Pomeranth is a dioecious plant, so it has both male, uh, male and female uh, plants. And uh, the female plant can produce, uh, I've heard up anywhere between 500,000, I've heard upwards of a million seed per plant. So you got to make sure that, you know, if you're going through the field at the end of the season, you see some Pomeranth plants that have escaped, you need to like, uh, excise them to destroy them make sure that seed hasn't been uh, been produced and you know it's going to just inundate the weed, the weed seed bank the soil seed bank um so looking at um control measures for the for those crops uh or sorry for those weeds um someone had brought up uh the the, the pre-talk someone had, had uh, brought up a dual magnum being of interest to getting some 24C labels in certain crops for dual magnum. Dual magnum is one of the most versatile uh, herbicides that we have in vegetable crops. It can be used in sweet corn, uh, green beans, uh, tomato, uh, um, and then several cucurbits. Uh, we don't currently have a label for dual magnum in pepper, uh, but that is uh, one thing I'm working on right now with uh, Syngenta and trying to get some, you know, trying to get some data from, from Georgia, where I believe they do have a 24C label for dual magnum in pepper. Uh, I, I've done several trials in the Midlands area of the state and dual, I've not seen any stunting of pepper when you're using it um, pre-transplant. Uh, so uh, that's something I'm gonna try and uh, work on over this, this summer or this, this spring rather, hopefully get it soon is looking at a 24C label for dual magnum in pepper. So dual magnum has uh, its spectrum regarding weed control. It's gonna uh, control uh, really good on pigweed. So it's one of the driver weeds, really good at pigweed and other kind of medium to small, small seeded broadleaf weeds, uh, very good on grasses. And it, it does provide some, I call it suppression of nutsedge. You can't rely solely on dual magnum for nutsedge control. But when it's used in combination with other practices, other herbicides, it can be it's, it's pretty effective. Um, dual magnums. Uh, one of the the great things about dual magnum, from again more of a weed science biochemical perspective, is that the active ingredient itself uh, targets three different enzymes. So we don't deal with herbicide resistance too much in vegetable crops. However, there are some growers I work with who rotate between. Um, yeah, some, some larger row crops like cotton and soybean and then veg, uh, vegetable crops. So in that instance, um, there's, a, there's been a little bit of concern over reflex uh, resistance in palm amaranth. And because uh, you know, reflex is a herbicide we use in, in some vegetable crops, including sweet potato. Uh, we've just got a new 24C label for reflex and sweet potato as of last year and, um, and some nightshade crops. So dual magnum, you do not have to worry, but we have not seen resistance uh, so far with uh, um, dual magnum and weeds. And real quickly for um, anyone listening who isn't sure um, about what this is, can you just briefly explain like what a 24C label is? Yeah, yeah. so a 24C label is kind of a, 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 a special uh, use needs label for an individual state, and uh, what that entails is um, you know, the the weed side or whoever, yeah, who could be the extension weed scientist, pathologist, entomologist, depending on what type of pesticide you're requesting a 24C label for, um, and work with the um, uh, 
the company, try and provide some data, and then uh, goes through the Clemson Pesticide Regulatory Office. And then that label is, um, you know, the, the, then Syngenta sends out a 24C label. And basically the, the 24C label, I, I, I believe um, the, uh, the risk of crop injury uh, is the applicator's responsibility as opposed to the company's. So, um, you know, we need to be very, uh, I don't know if you've seen any of my extension talks before, but I feel like sprayer calibration for herb for herbicide herbicides and vegetable crops is more important, or you have to be uh, more precise than any other pesticide application, herbicide application of row crops, insecticide or fungicide applications in any crop, because there's the margin of error for crop injury is very thin. You know, maybe we get 2x um, safety. So you can potentially have, um, uh, you know, when you're turning the boom in the field, have a, uh, you know, a passover of a previous applied area, you'd, you'd be safe. But it's not like uh, row crops where you have four or five, six x um, margin of safety. So with these 24C labels, they, you know, it's, I can you know, have some data from several, some light, some light soils in uh, South Carolina regarding the dual magnum uh, application in, in peppers. But um, yeah, we're very precise in our uh, herbicide. Our technician is very precise in terms of calibration application. So if we do get a 24C label, it's, um, it's imperative that uh, the applicators uh, be very um, uh, cognizant regarding calibration and application of the herbicide and specialty crop. Uh, an alternative, um, another way to try and get a herbicide registered in specialty crop is going through IR4. And I am the uh, IR4 liaison for South Carolina. And IR4 is a, basically, it's a third party entity. It's funded by the, I believe the USDA. And it basically you have, uh, the purpose of IR4 is to register pesticides and minor crops that a company would otherwise not invest best in, in terms of getting safety data, um, crop residue data, efficacy data. So you, anyone can really go to the IR4 website and um, the, the somewhat um, intuitive in terms of um, you know pulling down and saying what crop you, you're looking at and what herbicide or what what type of pesticide, herbicide, insecticide, nematicide, fungicide, and then the specific active ingredient. Now, anyone can do that, but I'd probably prefer uh, requests be made to the agents and then you know, either the agents or themselves or um, myself, if it's a herbicide, uh, can, can uh, make the request on the IR4 website. I have been doing an insecticide or two, but I, with Tom Bilbo starting, I, I would I would um, request that all the IR4 insecticide um, projects or yeah, requests be made through uh, Dr. Bilbo and then Tony Kineth for, for fungicides. Right, yeah, and like you said, probably um, if you have trouble contacting any of those people, just reach out to your local agent and they can help you with that too. Yeah. Thank you um, for seeing that. Yeah, so uh, regarding uh, I'm a little excited. This is like my first time in six years at, uh, at Clemson that I've um, uh, I'm, I'm able to announce a uh, new herbicide being registered, and it's at least minor crop. The, the minor crops. There's they're going to expand it to more vegetables, but uh, bicyclopyrin, which I talked about um, 
you know, probably several talks uh, since I've been at Clemson. It's a, a HPD inhibiting herbicide, which is the same mode of action as Callisto, which is used in sweet corn. Basically, the first ever um, HPVD inhibiting herbicide that would be registered, at least in specialty crops. The it's called um, I believe it's called Optogen. It's going to be registered this year, but the the crops are very thin right now in terms of what they have the initial registration. It's like wormwood, um, lemongrass, and rosemary are the three minor crops where uh, op, uh, Optogen has been registered. Now I do believe they're going to register in watermelon. That was, um, I've done probably five years of testing with that active ingredient in watermelon and have had no um, safety issues. So that, um, again, right now, it's only gonna be registered in rosemary, lemongrass, and wormwood. But I think the potential in the next year or so for it to be included in some cucurbit crops is um, significant. So what, what, one of the reasons I'm excited about that uh, compound is we don't really have anything for uh, that's that effective on well, some of, the, some of our sulfonurias, but other than the sulfonuria herbicides, um, we don't have anything that's really effective on larger seeded broadleaf weeds. So common cockleburr, uh, sun, sunflower, whether it's volunteer or wild, and then, and then nutsedge pre-emergence. So this should um, provide some, uh, uh, some measure of control against the larger seeded broadleaf weeds, which is exciting. And um, another new product, I guess on the horizon. I know some growers used this last year, but there is a uh, novel UV reactive plastic mulch that's designed that's designed from CNG, Charter Next Generation. It's called Solar, I uh, believe Solar Flare. And we, we had some demos of it at the, the Vegetable Field Day last year, but Solar Flare is um, once the light hits, UV light hits it, it tightens stronger you know, over the bed, which is um, ideal because I don't remember any of my um, talks on uh, bed formation. And if you've ever seen Stanley Culpepper give a talk on you know, bed formation, having a, a tight, um, uniform uh, bed surface is integral to um, uh, improve weed control and pest control. If you're using any kind of a fumigant, or if you're using, um, I've talked about anaerobic soil disinfestation in the past, having a, um, where you throw a carbon source in to try and promote uh, anaerobic soil disinfestation or APT, this uh, mulch, you know, I believe, improves that. Now, it, it, the mulch um, is not a silver bullet against nutsedge. It's, it's better than conventional poly, uh, polyethylene mulch, but you, you have to um, use other options, you know, whether it's a herbicide, um, scale seed bed technique. So, um, I haven't talked about stale seabed technique yet. So to me, that's a really good um, option for trying to uh, reduce the uh, seeds and the weeds in the soil seed bank, weed seeds in the soil seed bank. Uh, so, so weeds, when they um, produce seed, seed goes into a, a, a phase called primary dormancy. And that's just a function of kind of, you know, they've evolved that they don't germinate right away to help ensure their survival. So the, like mo most, most weed seeds undergo primary dormancy. There might be an exception like horseweed. It really doesn't have much of a seed coat. So that, I believe that can germinate um, instantaneously, you know, pretty soon once it hits the ground. But most weed seeds uh, are primary dormancy. And then, um, you know, once the, you know, if there's summer annuals, once spring comes around, they'll germinate. There's a secondary um, dormancy mechanism called, well, it's called secondary dormancy. 
And that occurs when there's conditions that aren't optimal for the weed survival. So if there's a drought, if it's too flooded, um, uh, something we don't think about that causes secondary uh, um, dormancy is competition of plants that are emerging. So our goal with a stale seedbed technique is to break um, that secondary uh, uh, secondary dormancy in weed seeds. So stale seedbed works the best. So stale seedbed technique occurs when you cultivate the, the, the land, allow the weeds to come up and then burn them down and do that for several cycles. So a cultivate, you um, basically you, the, the, the um, stale seed bed technique to be most effective, you want to maybe irrigate after you cultivate and try and uh, like make sure the germination and then burn it down multiple times. Then you gotta, re gotta be cognizant of the fact like started the stale seed bed technique back in April or late March, you might be getting crabgrass and other early summer annuals, but you're only getting maybe one flush of, uh, of uh, the, the late, late summer annuals. So try and plan accordingly and, to, and based on when you're transplanting your crop to, um, to initiate the stale seed bed te technique and try and get at least, um, I'd say at least two, hopefully three uh, burn downs and um, of uh, the late summer annual flushes, if, if possible. So basically encourage the weeds to come up so that you burn them down while they're small. Exactly. Yep. Um, Mark Van Gessel is a, a weed scientist at Delaware, and he gave a talk. He called it like the Cadillac um, um, stale seedbed technique, where he actually like, fertilized the, the, the ground. Germinate, I think he used a germination stimulant, gibberellic acid. Um, we actually bought some from Walmart. We're doing a test this year to see if uh, uh, gibberellic acid increase um germination and come and burn it down more. Yeah. It working on rates, so both will be cost effective, but that's um I, I, with some of the weed pressure that we have, at least in the coastal areas of South Carolina, it's it's and you can't just rely on like one or two soil herbicide. So trying to reduce the amount of competition before you even plant is really important. Right. And so this new like solarizing mulch. I'm guessing that if you have a stale seed bed and then the mulch is have it gets tight because you want less air for germination of the weed seeds. If there's okay, yeah. So the, if, if we did, you know, talk about doing a stale seed bed technique and then coming back with raised beds and the plastic mulch, um, yeah. I, I I mean one of one of the reasons I think it, it the material itself is stronger, like it, and that's what uh, helps with with weed control. Um, if you, one of the, the benefits of using that um, the solar flare mulch, it doesn't tear easily. So you can pull it off at the end of the scene without tearing. Mm. So I think that the, the reason the mulch is more effective on weed control, you know, other than the fact that it makes the bed so tight and um, you know, limits gas exchange and um, uh, oxidization, is that uh, you, um, you know, it's, it's so strong relative to the conventional conventional mulch and it's a you're more more resistant to wildlife running through it like a lot of deer and um, yeah fowl that were that go through the, the fields and it's um it's not going to tear as easily when they run through it okay um, and is that 
that's available. You said y'all were um, trialing it um, at some of y'all's fields um, at the rec. Are growers mm -hmm. seen that yet? Uh, you talking about the solar flare mulch? Yeah. Yeah, um, we've uh, actually introduced it um, with uh, Justin. Um, one of his growers was was using it. Um, that's where I first met the rep for CNG and trial with it. But yeah, they're definitely. Um, I know some growers in the low country are using it because that CNG rep came to a, a grant meeting I hosted and talked to a few of the growers. So I know it's being used up uh, kind of Justin's area and then also on some of the sea islands around here. So it's uh, it's that I, I, when it first came out, it might have been either like cheaper than uh, the, the conventional black mulch because I believe it less materials to use. It's more environmentally friendly because there's less fossil fuels going into it. But I think the company is going to raise the price because it's you know, so effective, and they want to recoup their R and D investment. So right. uh, it might be getting it might be a little price more pricey than uh, the conventional black mulch now. But uh, I I think it's worth it. It's, it's a better product. Yeah. Nice. Well, that yeah. And now that you mentioned that too, I feel like. Well, I asked if growers were using it because I felt like I was, um, I had seen that in some of the fields. Yeah, it's, it's more shiny. It really sticks yep. out. It's really, mm -hmm. yeah. so. Great. Well, it sounds like lots, lots of, um, lots of options, lots of new options mm -hmm. growers can consider um, for weed control, but also definitely sounds like now is the time to really Focus in so you can start your season off hopefully with less weeds, um, so you won't have such a battle to fight throughout the rest of the season. Yeah, um, I guess regarding nutsedge, I don't one of the things I forgot to mention was soil moisture management. Mm -hmm. So, like, I remember um, I was actually doing a trial with uh, Tony Melton when I first got here, and the we had like the rain gun set up and it got stuck um, in one spot, and then the next week when I came by there was a whole bunch of nuts edge that had germinated where the, you know, the rain gun was hitting and got stuck. And it's really, that to me was the moment where I'm like, wow, yeah, yeah, it really, you know, soil moisture really does matter in terms of um, trying to eliminate uh, nuts edge competition. Now, yeah. nuts edge is just a hyper competitive weed. It's, it's much more competitive than crops and other plants in very wet soils, most, most, most crop plants but it's also um, competitive and very dry soil. So when we had the drought last year, I was about to see potato fields. The only weed I saw was, um, was nutsedge. So it's just a, a really difficult uh, weed to control. I think one of the key things that we don't always think about, um, at least primary think about in weed control is just doing everything you can, you can to have the most competitive crop. So the, the, you know, in terms of the soil moisture levels, it's in the middle where the crops can be most productive. Not said it's going to be all over, but it's just trying to, you know, the soil moisture is more a function of making sure your crop is, is you know, is more, the most competitive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nut touch is definitely, I feel like each year that I've been in this position, I've seen more and more um, start popping up in fields and orchards um, too. So definitely one of our biggest problems that we're seeing right now as far as good control, but well, um, any other advice for anybody going into the 
going into the season. I know everybody's, I know Rob's area, he's talking about lots of, lots of transplants um, have gone in or going in. And like I said, our summer crops are going in now too. So any other last words of advice? Um, yeah, I, I guess it's, um, I, I guess last minute, to me last minute is, um, uh, with weed control, with what the options we have is uh, it's not, it's not the best way to go about it. So if you're planting, I don't know, I think sweet, like for some of the crops that are planting a little later, it's just do everything you can pre-season to reduce the weed, the weed competition. Um, and, and there's stuff like tomato and, and watermelon. We have a decent amount of, of pretty effective herbicides plus plastic mulch, but it, um, a lot of the other, you know, airground crops, it's you have to be very diligent in your preseason uh, weed management. So. All right. Well, thank you for joining us this morning and, and sharing all of that good information. We, we appreciate it. And I know that weed control is always in the forefront of everyone's mind because nobody likes dealing with a weed beetle. Yeah. Well, th thank you very, very much, Sarah. I appreciate you hosting us. Yeah. All right. Well, um, again, thank you to Rob and Matt for joining in with us this morning. Thanks everybody for tuning in and we will um, we will join y'all again in a couple weeks with a new episode. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks. Bye-bye.